0: Well, if you have your Bible, and I certainly hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4. Today we're picking back up with our series entitled Gospel Wisdom, Walking Through the Book of James. Remember, James is a letter written to churches scattered throughout the known area, and it's a very practical letter. Today we find some fascinating teaching on friendship, but it might not be the kind of friendship that you're expecting. Before I read the text, we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Gracious God, you've told us that we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Father, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this, your holy word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's word, James 4, starting in verse 1. What causes Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save, to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Sam Rayburn was a speaker of the House of Representatives for over 17 years, longer than any other person that served in this position. A story is told about him that shines light on his true character. The teenage daughter of a friend of his died suddenly one night. Early the next morning, the man heard a knock on his door. And when he opened it, there was Mr. Rayburn standing outside. The speaker said, I just came by to see what I could do to help. The father replied with deep grief, I don't think there's anything you can do, Mr. Speaker. We are making all the arrangements. Well, Mr. Rayburn said, have you had your coffee this morning? The man replied that they had not taken time for breakfast. So Mr. Rayburn said that he could at least make coffee for them. While he was working in the kitchen, the man came in and said, Mr. Speaker, I I, I thought you were supposed to be having breakfast at the White House this morning. Well, I was, Mr. Rayburn replied. But I called the president and told him I had a friend who was in trouble and I couldn't come. Talk about a true friend. As you and I both know, friendship with someone is more than simply being an acquaintance. It involves personal connection and genuine care. Well, here in James 4, we find James asking us where we are making friends. But he isn't talking about friends at school or in the neighborhood or at work. No, it's something much deeper than that. And he presents us with two possibilities friendship with the world on one hand and friendship with God on the other. These are the only two options. And so the question is this morning, where are you making friends? Let's explore these two friendships for a few minutes. First, friendship with the world. The heart of this passage is found in verses 4 through 6. And in verse 4, James says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Throughout this letter, James refers to his audience in a very pastoral way. He often uses the term brothers. He's speaking compassionately to them. But here he doesn't use that. It's very different. What does he say? You adulterous people. That's a smack-you-in-the-face kind of attention-getting phrase. We can't overlook that. What is James saying? Well, he's saying, and he's showing the people and us as readers the seriousness of friendship with the world. He's showing us that it isn't just a little mistake here and a little bit of sin there. No, we are far more wicked than we could ever imagine, and sin is so much more perverse than we ever want to admit. Throughout the Old Testament, we find the comparison of sin, and specifically the sin of idolatry, with spiritual adultery. For example, Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Man, that's serious business. And James is picking up on that same kind of idea here, talking about friendship with the world. He's comparing it to spiritual adultery, cheating on the Lord. What exactly is friendship with the world? Friendship with the world is basically being more committed to earthly ideas and possessions than to God. It's caring about your reputation, your wealth, your status, your looks, your house, your car, your second house, your vacation, your job. It could be living for the weekend or for summer break or retirement. It could be embracing the secular ideologies of our day or the moral corruption in our culture. In 1 John 2, the apostle John describes friendship with the world as a love for the world. He says in 1 John two fifteen to 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Friends, the question is not, do you love the world? The question actually is not, are you friends with the world? No, the real question is, when and how do you fall into this? The fact of the matter is that we make friends with the world all the time. We all love the world, at least at times. And James says that this makes us enemies with God if we follow it to its logical end. Ouch. I don't think any of us want to be enemies with God. But James is saying that the corruption of trying to be friends with the world will lead you to being an enemy of God if you let it. You see, what seems to be happening in the churches that James is writing to is the same thing that happens in churches today. There are people trying to have some of both, and that can be true of us. We want some of friendship with the world and some of friendship with God, but James is saying it doesn't work that way. You can't have both. These friendships are mutually exclusive. How might this friendship with the world play out in everyday life? Well, we don't have to imagine, for James gives us a very specific example, and he applies what he's saying to our speech, which is a really fascinating uh, work that he's doing. Look at verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Here James unpacks verbal disputes in the local church. It's it's this fighting that comes from anger. It could be between two church members, or it could be between a husband and a wife. Really, the applications are limitless. After all, the yous we find in this text are plural. So it's what causes fights and what causes what causes quarrels, what causes fights among y'all? Do you ever have arguments with your spouse, your children, your siblings, your coworkers? Well, you all do, right? So what is the cause? Most of us would say it's you, not me. Often, when I first start doing marriage counseling with a couple, I'll ask them, "Well, why are you here? What do you hope to accomplish?" And often I'll get an answer like this, well, my husband does this, this, and this. My wife does such and such. And if, you know, it could get them to change, I think our marriage would be much better. You see, we all suffer from what I like to affectionately call the Taylor Swift syndrome. Deep down, I have an appreciation for Taylor Swift's music. Now, some of it's a little bit out there, uh, but It's catchy. And one of our songs is a particularly insightful into our thoughts for the title of that song is, Look What You Made Me Do. And in that song, she just repeats that line over and over again. And I mean, there's other words, but look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. And I think we fall into thinking that way. When we have arguments, we say things like, yeah, I yelled at you, but if you hadn't left the toilet seat up for the millionth time, I wouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, I went and played golf and left you to care for the kids and do the laundry, but you got to realize work's been stressful and, and y'all have been annoying. I just had to get a break. Friends, James doesn't let us off the hook like this. The problem isn't out there in some other person. No, the problem is within. It's in our own heart. The problem is our friendship with the world. We fight with others because of our desires. We covet and long for things and it leads us to anger. It leads us to conflict. Well, what might be some of the things we desire that lead to our anger and to our fights? What could be our comfort? You yelled at your spouse because he or she left, the thermostat turned up, and now you're sweaty, all because you long to be comfortable. We desire respect. We argued with a coworker because deep down we didn't think that person was respecting us like we thought they should. We desire our own pleasure. We get mad when our children need us because we think we deserve to relax. We have pleasure after a long day of work. What are the desires in your life that lead to fights? I challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light into your heart and show you what it is that you desire. It's beneath the surface. It takes work. It's important to see what causes, those fights and quarrels. James also says that friendship with the world leads to speaking evil about others. We find this in verses 11 and 12, but this connects to so much of what he's already said that I'm not really going to dive into it, although I'd encourage you just to look at that and examine it, because James has some important things to say there. You know, there's a sense in which examining friendship with the world should be convicting for us. If you look more like the world Maybe you are of the world and not of God. Perhaps you need change. The story is told of a young man who was eager to fight in a great battle. He was underage, and so he had to sneak away from home to join the army. As the battle began, the young man was overcome with fear and ran away. His commanding officer sent soldiers to find him and bring him back. When the young man returned, he was taken to the king. The king demanded to know his name. But the young man only mumbled the response. The king grew angry and said, young man, what is your name? The young man said, Alexander, your majesty. With that, King Alexander the Great shouted at the frightened young man, Alexander, young man, either change your name or change your behavior. Friends, we need change. And that change involves a friendship with God. That's the destination, but what's the means of transportation to it? We find that in verse 6. But he gives more grace. God's grace is the avenue to friendship with the Lord. Grace is the riches of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ effectually given to us through union with Christ. By faith, we are connected to Jesus. And all that he is and all that he does is ours. That's grace. The hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin, puts it this way. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Friends, have you experienced this grace? If not, cry out for it today. Ask the Lord to lavishly pour out, it, pour out His grace upon you. And if you have experienced it, then ask for more. Ask that you would experience it in a deeper way. When God gives us more grace, we are enabled to find friendship with Him. In fact, Scripture tells us that God has made us His friends. In John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants. But I have called you friends. You know, this is remarkable. The God of the universe, through the ministry of His Son, has transformed all who believe in Christ from enemies to friends. That is so amazing. It should warm your heart, and it should motivate you to pursue a deeper friendship with God. What does this friendship with God look like? First, it means rejecting friendship with the world. We've seen what this friendship with the world looks like, so we're to avoid that. But James goes much deeper. Verses 7 through 10, we find nine commands describing friendship with God. Remember, I told you two weeks ago, reading James can feel like drinking from a fire hydrant. Well, here's one of those examples. Look at verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The first and the last commands serve as bookends that fit together. Submit to God humble yourself. These really carry the same sense. If we are going to submit to God, we must recognize that He is God and we are not. He is the one in charge and we aren't. Because of our sin nature, we don't love being told what to do. Kids, do you get excited when your mom or dad say, "Uh, clean your room or eat your vegetables or do your homework? No, of course not. We don't like acknowledging those who are in charge. But James is clear here, God's the one in charge. And so we must submit to him in loving obedience. God's commands may not always tickle our fancies. They might not seem like what we want or how we would do things. But we are called to humble ourselves and to submit to him. Which raises the question, have you submitted to the Lord? Perhaps you're here today and you realize that you've never done that. You've thought that you were fine, that you're a Christian, but now you realize, I've never really submitted to the Lord. I pray you see that God is the one in charge and that you are called to submit to Him. And even if you have done this once when you came to faith, you must do it over and over again. Every day we submit to the Lord. James then calls us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist is a word used for battle. It's taking one's stand against the enemy, ready to fight. Remember, Satan and his forces don't play fair. There are no rules of engagement for them. So we must put on the full armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Think of Jesus resisting the devil in the wilderness in Matthew 4. What does he do? He quotes Scripture. He takes up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why the very next command in our text is draw near to God and He will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? Well, this isn't talking about our conversion. This was written to believers, not unbelievers. Once God has given us faith in Christ, we draw near to Him repeatedly through prayer reading his word, fellowship, and corporate worship. These are God's ordinary means of grace whereby we grow in our knowledge of and love for our Savior. Remember back up in verses 2 and 3, James says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on, our, on your passions. This is a call to Prayer. Do you regularly draw near to God? We know we're supposed to as Christians, but we fail to do so, so often. You know what keeps us from regularly drawing near? I think one of the main reasons is we don't really believe that God will meet us in a powerful way. We fail to realize that God's ordinary means are vessels of extraordinary grace in Jesus Christ. We think that these are duties rather than life-giving and life-transforming meetings. If I told you that Jesus would be here next Sunday in the flesh, in this sanctuary, and you would hear from him, I can guarantee you the sanctuary would be packed. But Christ is here today and he's present every Sunday. Don't underestimate what God is doing. James then says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's calling them to change their actions and their thoughts. The love of the things of the world can keep us from God. Jesus picks up on this in the parable of the sower, Mark 418 18-19. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. James then gives the final three commands: be wretched, and mourn, and weep. In other words, grieve over your sin. See it for what it is. This past week, I had the honor of teaching Bible at VBS, and one of the days we were talking about sin. I made a very, very similar point about like this to the kids to help them understand the gravity of sin. I said, each time we sin, it's as if we're slapping God in the face. Or even worse, it's like we're spitting in his face. This really sunk in with some of our kids. And I hope it sinks in with you too. Joel 2.12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. When is the last time you grieved over your sin? So often we move quickly past it. Honestly, we have a casual view of our sin. And I think this is the case because often we presume too much on the grace and mercy of God. Does God forgive our sin? Yes. Is he gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Absolutely. But that doesn't change the sinfulness of our sin. And we must never presume upon God's mercy and grace Instead, we are to genuinely mourn over our sin. Then we cry out to God, pleading for his mercy. Friendship with God is full of action. It's not chummy, chummy, buddy old pal, kind of a relationship. No, the commands involve serious work. But remember, grace comes first. Grace comes first. Think back to verse six, but he gives more grace. Praise God for that grace. So close, where are you seeking friendship? Pursuing friendship with God or friendship with the world? Even though those of us who have a friendship with God, we still fall into the lure of friendship with the world, and we must repent of this and return to God. And at the end of the day, there's hope for all of us. Often at times we don't act like friends of God, but Jesus is a friend for sinners. Wilbur Chapman wrote a hymn by that name. Listen to the first two stanzas. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, a lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Praise God that Jesus is a friend for sinners. By the power of the Spirit of Christ, you and I can choose friendship with God over friendship with the world. May our Heavenly Father enable us to do just that. Let us pray.